Welcome back, everybody. This is week 52 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. And this week, we get to head back into that very last group of chapters. We're going to go from 15 all the way up through 22 in the book of Revelation. And I know it's a bit of a hard adjustment after our week enjoying the Christmas story, but I have to tell you, I think I'm starting to really like the book of Revelation. That is not something I anticipated heading into these three weeks of study, but I'm kind of starting to get it, you guys. And especially this week, I found so much light and excitement in it. I had to gear myself up a little bit. I will tell you that one of the things that really helped me is I've been studying the Book of Mormon daily just in my mornings. While I eat breakfast, I study the Book of Mormon. And I happen to be at the very end of the Book of Mormon. I'm in Mormon, and I was reading Mormon 9. These are Moroni's words where he's trying to talk about this same period of time, his warnings about how he knows how things are going to end, and he really just hopes we will grab hold. The same way he knew for his people how things were going to end, and he hoped they would grab hold. And he gave this counsel. So I can't remember what verses these are. I'll, I'll put it in the notes if I can, but it's in the 20s somewhere. And he basically said he wants us to despise not the prophecies, the revelations, to wonder not, to hearken to the words, and to ask the Father in his name, and then to doubt not and be believing. That's sort of the lens I put on when I approached Revelation this week. Because I felt like I just had to come with the assumption that these words are necessary and motivating for me to believe. And as soon as I got that framework in my head, things clicked together faster for me. Because I found myself wondering, like, what is it I need to believe in? What is John trying to help me understand? And the big message of every week in the book of Revelation is about the victory of the Savior especially this week, because you actually see the victory of the Savior. You read about the millennium and those thousand years of peace. You read about the overcoming of the adversary and this, you know, forward movement when it comes to the celestial kingdom and the glories that are coming. And, and then you wrap up with John's plea to please come unto Christ. You know, after all that he's seen and all that he's written, John's big message is come. It's the same message the Savior began with in the New Testament when he approached his apostles and said to them, come, follow me. It's just this invitation, this constant drumbeat of an invitation to come unto him because he's the only way, the only way through all the things we're going to read this week and the only way to get to that grand hereafter that he hopes for us. He's the only way there. And one of the best ways you can learn about how to get there, believe it or not, is the words of John in the book of Revelation. So I'm going to try and guide you through it. I, I promise it's worth your time. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes. It's time to get started. Each week of these three weeks, we've seen seven warnings come forth. So in that first week, we studied those seven seals and how as things rolled forth as those seals are opened, it was a warning and a clear indication that time was marching forward and there would be a phase of destruction. Then in that second week, we saw the seven trumpeters. Remember, like Jericho style, they were sent out to warn people, to urge them to repent. And as each trumpet came forth, there was a warning and then there was destruction that followed. This week, we have a whole different warning, and you can tell things are intensifying, because what comes this time are plagues, really similar to what we saw in the Old Testament. In fact, a lot of the plagues are almost identical to what we read with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and I honestly think the intent is the same, where last time the intent was to get Pharaoh to change, to get him to release the children of Israel, to get his people to safety, because... 
know, even the Egyptian people, I don't think God hoped to harm any of those people. But because Pharaoh chose to reject and turn away from the prophet and also the ramifications of his choices, the Lord couldn't change course. He had to continue down that path. And you almost see that happening here. So this one will happen with plagues and it covers 15 and 16. What I think is interesting is right at the beginning, you see this song. So really similar to the song that the children of Israel sing as they escape from the Red Sea. They are delivered by the hand of God through the Red Sea and they sing this deliverance song. And it's alluded to here in these verses. And for me, it's almost like an anthem of sorts. You know, it's almost like they're pumping themselves up for what is coming. Because the next, you know, seven or eight chapters, you guys, are full of heart. There's there's a battle that's coming, and I think the angels of heaven know it. And this is their pump-up song. <laughs> that's how I read it. So in my margins, I have Thunderstruck written <laughs> next to the verses, because I think this is a lot like my high school football games. Like when I would go to my high school football game, my you would hear Thunderstruck playing so loud that it would almost shake the bleachers. And you'd see the team come out on the field and everybody would be pumped up. And you're when you hear that song, it was a remembrance of victories of the past and it was a hopeful, you know, excitement to look to the victory that might happen today. That was kind of the idea was it was getting you ready for what was inevitably coming, this victory that was coming. That's how I see this song of deliverance. Because even though the plagues will be hard and devastating to some, there will be ultimate victory at the end. So if you look through 15, you can see that song of deliverance and then this warning about the plagues. I just think it's really interesting who carries these plagues. So like I mentioned, they're carried by angels in these bowls or vials as they're called, and they are going to be poured out one by one. But before anything is poured out, there is this interesting verse. So if you look at five and six, it references the temple. So in six, it says, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. I think before any of these destruction phases happen, there is this phase of reverence and prayer and a temple-like experience of some kind. I don't, I don't really know what this means, but I do really love the contrast to what we read in other battles. You know, if you read in the Book of Mormon about the Lamanites preparing for battle, in many different books, there are these Lamanites who come with bloodthirstiness and their their heads are shaved and they're often like bare-chested and they're ready for battle and there's just anger and hatred in their eyes. This is such a contrast to that. Even though destruction is going to need to happen and it's going to be hard, these angels come in pure white, coming from a temple with the work that needs to be done ahead of them. I just, I thought there was power in the contrast. If you go into chapter 16, you see them one by one pour out their vials or their bowls to allow the plagues to roll forth. And what's so interesting to me is that people don't turn. It's, it's almost like if you've got your kid in trouble, you know, like oftentimes this happens with our, my boys and their technology. If they're in trouble, sometimes I'll start with something small, you know, like I'll just take their AirPods or their Beats or something. If they continue down that path and they don't apologize, then next comes their switch or maybe their phone. You know, like the things intensify as they choose to rebel and get angry or hostile. And at some point in time, they catch on and they turn, right? And they say, okay, I'm sorry, mom, I messed that up. Let me dial that down. And I feel like this is what the Lord is hoping every time one of these plagues pours out. There's really similar plagues to what we see with the children of Israel. So you see plagues like boils that come forth that probably only affect the wicked and not the righteous, just the same way we saw 
where the Egyptians suffered from the boils, but not the children of Israel. You're also going to see things like the rivers and the seas turn to blood and this interesting little intermission. That's what I call it, because between these seven plagues, there is this, there's these intermission verses. It starts around verse seven or so, and it says, I heard another out of the altar say, even so, Lord Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. If you look at six, for example, it talks about, well, five and six, it talks about how the Lord was just and how he judged righteously and how these people shed the blood of the prophets. I just found this fascinating. To me, it almost felt like in the middle of these waves of destruction, there is a sustaining vote of sorts. I don't think, I don't mean that literally. I just think what John is teaching us is that the angels of heaven understand the need for this plague to come forth and have the same hopes that people will change. And when they don't change and are destroyed in the process, the angels of heaven say, no, that was just, you know, that was a fair consequence for the wickedness that they carried out. I think there's that it made me feel like these waves of plagues were slower and more deliberate and more participatory. I'm not sure the right phrase for it, but I just, anyway, go on the verses, see what you think. So the plagues roll out. You'll see a few others come forth. Like for example, in verse eight and nine, there's this plague with the sun where things start to be scorched in a, in a heat and people don't repent. In fact, it talks about how they, in nine, at the very end of nine, and they repented not to give him glory. In the end of 11, after another plague rolls forth, they repented not of their deeds. In fact, that last plague, the fifth one, I found kind of fascinating. Basically what happens on the fifth one is they see the Euphrates River dry up, where before we saw rivers turn to blood and seas turn to blood. This one is almost an absence of a river. You can go in the notes and learn more about this, but this is a river that ran right alongside Babylon. And when it dries up, it opens up gateways for enemies to invade the city and it it dries up truth. You know, like if you think about the Savior being this living water and this source of truth and life and nourishment, when that dries up, there is vulnerability and weakness. And because of that vulnerability, they're more susceptible to the next plague. So what you see come forth are these frogs. One of the things I learned this week as I was studying is that these frogs symbolize lies and apostasy and deceitfulness coming forth. Because when there's a lack of truth in the world, when there's a lack of that living water that nourishes and sustains, then you have a seedbed for falsehood. And that's what the frogs kind of symbolize. They're going to be a counterpoint to the Savior who is described as having a sort of truth come out of his mouth. The frogs are kind of the opposite of that. And there's just this really interesting visual for me is you see them, you see darkness and commotion set in. It reminded me a little bit since I'm at the end of the Book of Mormon, you know when Mormon, and I think even Moroni, they talk about that phase where there can be no more miracles in the land and the spirit can't work on anyone. Remember, even Mormon hopes that his fellow soldiers will repent and see the hand of God and change, and they don't. And they, they just take things as their own victory, and he he's sad because they never turn. And I just think you see a little bit that here. You also see guidance on how to prevent yourself from being susceptible to that darkness. Because we live in a sin-sick world now, and I imagine it will continue to ramp up. So you get guidance on how to control it. That's in verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. I think this is how we inoculate ourselves from all that deceit that is flying around in the world, all those 
frogs that are spitting out lies, I think the way you do it is to watch and pray always. And I like the visual of keeping your garments. I think it's really similar to what we heard Elder Bednar speak about two conferences ago, about the wedding feast and being worthy and choosing to put on that sacred garment. I don't think this is necessarily literal to the garments, but I do think there's implications there of like, choose to keep your covenants, choose to live how the Lord has asked you to live. If you do that, you'll have the promise that you'll never be susceptible to the lies and deceit that are all around you. You'll have you'll have your own source of truth available to you. I think that's his promise. Then a little bit later in the chapter, you see forces combining against the adversary. This is not Armageddon yet. This is not the final battle, but you can see forces building up. And as a result of all this destruction and all these plagues, you see this last plague roll out. So this is that seventh plague, and it begins around verse 18. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and the great Babylon came in remembrance before God. This is massive level destruction, where the face of the planet changes, like big things happen. In fact, you see in 20 that every island fl fled away. The mountains aren't found anymore. In 21, there's this massive hailstorm, like huge hailstones that damage everything in their path. And there's this warning in it, right? Like this has been, we've had seven seals, we've had seven trumpets, we've had seven plagues roll out, and there are still some who choose not to heed. And because of that, destruction happens. What's fascinating to me is what comes in the next chapter. Because I feel like when you get into 17, it's where you understand why they still choose, why they why they go through all these plagues and still choose to fight against the Lamb. You're going to get a feel for that when we get into 17. The reason so many choose to still turn against the light, I think, is really evident in 17 and 18. This is where you learn about the great whore of all the earth, the abomination. Like, there's so many different words. You can go in the Institute Manual, and I think it's Bruce R. McConkie that talks about things like the great and abominable church, and they talk about Babylon, and there's a lot of different metaphors that we use for this force of evil that continues to call after people and promises glory and power and beauty and wealth and cannot deliver. And that's what you see represented by this great whore. That's what it, it, how it's phrased in verse 1. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, meaning people. So this is someone who has control or tries to maintain control over the chaos and this reign of people. If you go into the verses, you can see how that happens. So like in Thor, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. This visual is so vivid, right? As opposed to the, the angels that we saw coming forth out of the temple with pure white linen and just a you know golden sash, basically. She is in these rich, saturated colors. She has this cup in her hand that she's trying to entice people to drink, and it's intoxicating, right? There is something, this just represents the adversary to me. It is something that looks lovely on the surface, that looks rich and valuable and exciting on the surface, but up close, can't offer. The, the visual that helped me is, I, I grew up, like I told you guys, helping in that 
theater that my parents restored and I got to learn how to do stage makeup really well. And stage makeup is kind of like this to me. It is something that looks so great from a distance, you know, like it is designed to look really good from very far away. So the, you know, cheeks are a lot pinker than you would do in normal life. The eyeshadow is a lot brighter and more saturated than it would normally be. The foundation layer is just caked on and it's like three shades darker than your normal skin tone. You wouldn't know that unless you come up close. From the audience, that stage makeup looks beautiful. When you go and you see actors in person backstage, you're like, whoa, <laughs> there's something jarring about it. And I think that's the adversary's way. He's he entices people from a distance, and then by the time you're close and you've consumed of that cup, he's already starting to intoxicate you a little bit. I think that's his strategy. He finds ways to get you to drink, which then starts to dull your senses. The same way alcohol does in today's world, I feel like that's kind of what she's offering. Once they're up close, he tries to dull our sensitivities to the spirit, to dull our relationships with others. We stop loving people and serving others and caring about people, we, we become cold, we become distant, we, we are numb. And that's what I think she's offering. In fact, you see on her forehead, it says in verse five, upon her forehead was a name written, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. There's almost a mocking feel to this. You know, like it's the great high priest who had that beautiful gold plate that said holiness to the Lord and what we read about in previous weeks in the book of Revelation where we all have this mark on our foreheads to take his name upon us. This, there's almost this mocking and cheapening of those things. In fact, I thought it was really interesting if you go in the footnotes, it links that word mystery here, not to the mysteries of God, but to like secret combinations. Like that's what she's promoting. That's what the Satan is trying to entice people into. And then he talks about what she's drinking. So if you look in six, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. I think there is a, a weakness in men that craves this. You know, I think you see it all throughout the Book of Mormon where people get bloodthirsty and this idea of like, I can destroy. I think we saw it in the Old Testament and the Pearl of Great Price. I mean, we saw it right at the beginning of man's story with Cain and Abel. There is this desire for power or property or something. And so we get a thirst for blood and you almost see that exemplified in this woman. And then there's this interesting stop point. So in seven, and the angel said unto me, wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and 10 horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. To me, this is like the angel saying like, don't be dazzled by her, even in a negative way. I don't think John admires her by any stretch. I don't think that's what that word means. If you go in the notes, you can learn more about that. But he's, he's kind of mystified by her and just kind of alarmed, I think, by her. And the angel says, don't even give her attention. That's how I read it. He's like basically saying, let me tell you where she came from. Like she comes from the bottomless pit. I know exactly where she came from. And I know exactly where she's going. She ends in perdition. There is no kingdom of glory here. You know, again, this isn't a literal person, but this is a representation of all the works of the adversary end in the same place. So you don't need to pay them much heed. The same way, if you read in the Institute Manual and things like that, you'll see things like, we're not supposed to pay a lot of attention to sorceries or to worry about cults or all those kind of other things. We, we don't pay them a lot of heed because we know where all that stuff goes. And so that's kind of his warning. When you go a little bit further, you see his guidance about these things. So when the angel's trying to help John understand, he says, basically, kings have worshiped at her feet. Kings have tried to, you know, 
have relations with her, meaning like the nations of the world oftentimes will sell themselves in order to gain power, to gain property, other things. So he warns that that's happening. But I love what it, how it's phrased in 12. Basically what he says is each of those kings gets one hour. I don't think this is literal. I think this is figurative. But this is what he's trying to say. It's like all those people who claim power and claim prominence, they get one spot in, in glory and in the sun and then they topple. You know, like we've seen so many nations in just the Old Testament and the New Testament, nations rise up and they have this moment in the sun and then they topple and a new nation builds on the rubble. That's what he's trying to teach us about. And he says where that culminates is in 14. These shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. What I like about this guys is I just feel like this is the constant message of the angels. They're kind of saying like, don't be intimidated or even pay attention to the adversary. Like granted, he's there and you have to be aware. But what you have to constantly remember is we are a part of the King of Kings. We are a part of his army and all of us are called. Remember the Doctrine and Covenants teaches us that, that many are called and few are chosen. And then he tells you why you're not chosen. If you get too wrapped up in the things of the world or the things that she exemplifies, you know, or the Babylon exemplifies this wealth and glory and power. If you get caught up in those things, then you can't be chosen anymore. So he says, be all of them, be called, be chosen, and be faithful. And if you do that, then you'll know you'll be on the right team. You see the end of Babylon begin in 18. So in 18, basically, it's kind of talking about the fall of Babylon. I won't go into all the details, but it's, again, I think this is the angel trying to say, don't get distracted, don't even pay too much attention this isn't going to last very long. Where she represents the adversary, Babylon represents the adversary as well. And so he talks about what happens. Basically, he's saying that Babylon got caught up in their own delicacies. They got caught up in their own high living. To me, Babylon, in my brain, I always picture Hunger Games and the Capitol. You know, like, I don't know if you guys saw those movies or read those books, but the group of people that are so bedazzled and they eat a ton and then throw up because they can't eat more. And so then they can eat again. Like there's just this waste and excess and abundance and a little bit of bloodthirstiness in the people of the capital. And I get that feeling with Babylon. And what John's trying to say here is in the vision, I saw Babylon fall. So in one day, Babylon falls. I don't know that this is literal, but I think it means very quickly. It could also mean literally. So if you look in eight, therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judged her. This is speaking about Babylon. And the king of the earth in nine hath committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. There will be those who have worshiped at the feet of Babylon, you know, who have done everything they can to make friends with those who offer power and prominence and property and wealth and all those things, um, they will mourn when Babylon falls. Because what do you do next? In fact, if you turn the page, that's sort of what you see. You see that they, the merchants mourn for the loss of Babylon. They mourn that there's no one to buy their gold and buy their little items and their idols and all the things. They start to mourn. I just thought it was so fascinating that None of these merchants are mourning the people that are destroyed when Babylon falls. They're mourning the economy that's lost. Their heart is still tucked away and held on tight to the riches. They missed it. You know, it's almost, well, you see again, the phrase at one hour, so in 17, for in one hour, so great riches is come to naught. And they mourn and weep that they've lost this market. I just think it's, it tells you something about the adversary's plans. You know, it talks about how, he is somebody who will lure you down to hell and he just doesn't 
care. He doesn't lift. He doesn't have loyalty. He just lures you down. And that's the feel I get here. This idea of this great city full of wealth and prominence falling in one day reminds me a lot of Ammonihah. So remember in the Book of Mormon when we melted those styrofoam cups and we talked about that city that got destroyed in one day because they were so cruel and they burned women and children and the new converts and, you know, the day in one day, this wealthy city that never thought they could be destroyed ended up being thrown down. That's what you see in 21. A mighty angel comes and throws a giant millstone in that sinks to the bottom of the water. And it's basically this object lesson to say, that's Babylon. All these things have their moment and then they will be gone. And what I love is it doesn't even seem to take effort. You know, he, he throws this millstone, a gigantic millstone into the water. And it almost seems casual, like a, this doesn't take effort for somebody who's empowered by the strength of God. Babylon will fall and we need to change our course if Babylon is our aim. That's John's message. So he talks about how no one will hear it at all. To me, if you look in the verses like 22, 23, and 24, this is when they start to talk about there's nothing left. There's no sound at all. There's no, no more music is heard there. No more light is shown there. There's, there's this hollowness that's left behind, almost like a ghost town kind of feel. And the visual that came to my mind is, if you ever watched like a documentary of the Titanic, and how they always show the opulence and the grandeur and the amazing everything, you know, it was so amazing. And in one day it sinks and it becomes this hollow, empty, there's no more people there. There's no more luxury there. There's, it is sunk down at the bottom of the sea and there's this hollowness to it. That's how I feel when I read the end of 18, because I think that's what he's trying to help us understand about all the worldliness that creeps into our heart. Everything that we seek that is not from God will eventually feel like that Titanic at the bottom of the ocean, something that cannot last. And so he's trying to get us to keep our eyes fixed on what can. I really liked chapter 19. One, it's a nice breath of fresh air compared to all the destruction chapters we just read, but I love the visuals in 19. This is where you see two suppers held. There's the marriage supper of the lamb and what is it called? The, the supper of the great God, which is basically there's a celebration for the righteous and there is a destruction phase for the wicked. And he's basically saying, you're invited to this one. <laughs> you're invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. If you live worthy, you get to come. It's got that feel of the 10 virgins. Remember those who are prepared are able to come and they enter and they add their light to the feast. And then there's rejoicing. And those who aren't ready and haven't lived up to their promises, are left without. And that's kind of what's described in 19. I just think the visuals are so powerful because it talks about the celebration itself. So if you look in 16, it says, and a great, there was a voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Everyone rejoices when this day comes because this day is when that those symbols are united. So remember, when we studied the parable of the ten virgins, both in the Doctrine and Covenants and in the New Testament, you see the church of God represented by that bride and the Savior himself representing the groom. And this is this uniting of them. I actually love that. I can't remember who I learned this from. It wasn't me. I learned this. It's in the notes somewhere. But this idea of at one you know, the Savior's atonement being an at one That's kind of what marriage is, right? It's taking two people and 
making them at one. And that's what you see played out in these verses. So look at seven said, let us be glad and rejoice. Give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Remember, these are all symbols. I don't think we have to take anything too literally, but that visual of a bride making herself ready and being arrayed in beautiful garments, you know, beautiful clothes, fine white linen. It's not opulent. It's not excess. It's just fine, meaning it's simple and pure and beautiful on the surface. I just love that visual. I think maybe the fact that I got to help Hannah get ready for her wedding and I got to see that joy on her face. What I learned that day is, and I guess I knew this deep down for myself, but as I was studying Revelation this week, I realized that the joy that a bride feels that day is not necessarily just for what's going to happen that day. I mean, yes, you look radiant and everybody praises you and you get photos taken of you. And it's this exuberant day because you get to be with the person you love and start something new. It's the starting something new that I think actually brings the glow to your face. I just think there's something, when I saw Hannah that day, she rejoiced because of the joy of that day and really because of what it opened for every day after that she would have Jake next to her always, you know, that they would have each other. They could be with each other. They could have each other's back always. That's what I think about the marriage supper of the lamb. It's not that we're rejoicing in this day when there is that joining together. It's the fact that every day after it, we get to be near him. We get to live among, you know, people like God and the savior. We get to be in their presence. That's the joy that comes. You have that, you know, that same feeling that a bride has of looking forward that's what happens on this day. So, and I just love the simpleness of it. I love the invitation of it. When you look a little further, you see the groom described. So now we've described the bride as this adorned, beautiful, prepared person. And then you see the groom. I saw heaven open. This is verse 11. Behold, a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is the millennial Messiah, right? Coming in red robes, just like that Minerva Tiger painting, coming on a horse, not a donkey this time. This is the conquering Messiah that has been prophesied about. He is coming to finish what he started and to create this at one minute. I just think there's such power in this visual. I actually like that in the description of him, it says that he is called faithful and true in righteousness. He doth judge and make war. I think we always have to teach both sides of the savior's character, right? That he is both those things. Yes, he will destroy the wicked. Those who have been warned and invited to change and offered prophets and all those invitations to repent. There will be a destruction, but he is also a faithful and true and merciful God. He is both and in this perfect harmony. And that's kind of what you see described here. And then he talks about how things will roll forward, that he will speak with this sharpness of the sword of truth. I really like, so in this next block of verses, you're going to see that other supper described. It's hard to read. You're going to read about fowls eating the carcasses of people who were killed in this massive battle where basically the wicked fought against themselves. This is not the savior even destroying them or the angels of God destroying them. This is like the wicked turning on each other. You'll see more of that in coming chapters, but because of that great destruction happens and there's lots of bodies left over. And so he calls in the birds to basically take those bodies away so that that's not a burden on the earth anymore. And then you see 
this interesting phrase. So if you look, if you look at the page in 21, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. What's interesting to me is if you look on at the JST throughout these verses, he focuses on this sword not being a sword of destruction, but a sword of truth. I think this is another way that the wicked are destroyed. It's not so much always a physical destruction as it is he is able to slice through falsehood and slice through the lies of the adversary. And there is exposure that happens when he's able to take that. Remember, that's why we did the discipleship dojo and talked about those samurai type moments. That's what happens here. He cuts through the lies and the deceit that Babylon embodied and that great whore that we described and the adversary, like all of those lies and falsehoods. He slices through them and exposes what is real and what is true and what lasts. I really loved 22 because this is another evidence of Satan is no match for the power of God. <laughs> Basically, what we see play out is he is bound. So remember how we, this is the only chapter in this week's study about the millennium itself, about that thousand year time. And we studied this in the Doctrine and Covenants, how Satan will be bound for those thousand years. And I love the way it's described here. It kind of reminds me of, remember in Isaiah, we were studying the Old Testament together and there's these phrases where he talks about how when the adversary is bound, people look on him narrowly and they basically say like, you're the one everybody was scared of. That's kind of the feel you get here. In one, it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the great key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Like, it doesn't even sound hard. I'm sure it is. But, you know, I think there's something about the abruptness of these verses, that it's in a verse, two verses, Satan is bound. This great, scary, imposing force that everybody thought they should be bowing to is bound in two verses. And I just, it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if your kids ever watched Hercules. My, my older kids used to watch that show. And you know when Hercules is still just figuring out his powers and like he, all these big giants and monsters and things come into the like Colosseum and he's able to just like grab them without any effort and any attempt. Like it feels like that to me because there's just no, there's no contest. I think that's John's message. When it comes to the bluster and the, you know, intimidation of the adversary, there is no contest between his efforts and what God can do and what the angels sent on God's errand can do. And that's what you see in those verses. So in three, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he could not deceive the nations till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he should be loosed for a little season, meaning for a thousand years of time during that millennial phase, when Christ will reign personally upon the earth, Satan is bound. We're going to talk about this in the object lessons as well, but I love that modern revelation helps us understand that he's bound not just because he's in this pit and he's got this chain and this seal, but also because there's no one paying attention to him anymore. The outpouring of the spirit that comes during the millennial phase when Christ reigns on this earth causes people to see truth and turn away from the adversary. And as soon as you turn away from the adversary, he flickers and dies because he doesn't have the oxygen to feed on. You know, I, I think there's empowerment in that. It's part of the reason I think we all need to get strong so that we can weaken the adversary in this building up phase towards the millennium.
Then when you go a little bit further, it says in four what he saw. I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. What I like about this is this is John the beloved. He's someone who lives beyond every other apostle of the savior. And he saw all of them, I imagine, at least if not in person, he knew of their death. And I, I think he sees something sweet here, right? He sees these martyrs stand next to the Savior for those thousand years, that they have a work to do. And this must have been so reassuring to him to see that happen. Then he talks about the first resurrection that will occur. So you can go in the notes and learn more about this. But even though there are some who are resurrected at the time of the Savior's resurrection, he's the, he's the first fruits. He's the first one to be resurrected. But after that, many more are resurrected. Those great saints of the Old Testament that we've talked about from the Doctrine and Covenants, they're resurrected around that time. And now we talk about the first resurrection. It's called the resurrection of the just at times, which is basically just those who are going to obtain the celestial glory. They're resurrected at the beginning of the millennium. And that's what John's trying to describe. And then he talks about when Satan is loosed again. So you really only have this tiny little sliver of a window about the millennium. And then you see the end of the millennium where Satan is loosed and destruction comes out. I just found myself wondering, like, how is it that anyone turns away from God? You know, after a thousand years of seeing him reign in righteousness, a thousand years without sorrow or death or, you know, those same things that we encounter here. I, how do you turn away? And it was the Institute Manual. And then I heard it reinforced in Michael Wilcox's book as well. But they both talked about fourth Nephi and how this happens in fourth Nephi, right? That first chapter of fourth Nephi after the savior has come, People are righteous and they band together and there's prosperity and growth and happiness. And then over the course of a few generations, we lose it. You know, we lose sight of what was just in front of us. We get greedy. We create divisions. All of those things are natural man tendencies that can creep up as soon as Satan is loosed. In fact, sometimes I wonder if Satan being loosed amplifies that or if it's our choices to go towards greed or go towards division that that amp up the power of the adversary. I'm not sure which, if it's the chicken or the egg in that scenario, but you can see things rolling forth. And then there is that, that final scene, that there is a judgment that occurs. There is that great last battle and a judgment where you are judged based on your works and the desires of your heart. That's all phrased in 21. It's just so short. So I found myself, I mean, you get the millennium, the resurrection of the just and you know, the description of basically Armageddon and the description of the judgment all in like, 15 verses. So this study of Revelation made me so grateful for the Doctrine and Covenants because there's so much more. In fact, if you just go in the Book of Mormon, you can read so much more about these probationary states and why it's worth it and what the judgment is like. I just think we are so blessed to have more modern scripture that can add to what John has given us as a foundation here. Now that we've been through that millennial phase and we had that last great battle and the victory of the Savior and the judgment, now you get to open up to a whole new vista. 
in fact, if you go into chapter 21, to me, this feels like, well, I have Avatar written in my margin. <laughs> because you know how the movies like Avatar, where you get to see this whole new world open up and you're just kind of dazzled by it when you first see it, especially if you go in a, like a big theater and you watch it. I can still remember seeing that world and just being sort of mesmerized by it, that the plants were glowing and the islands were floating in the air. And it was so unique and new and riveting. That's 21, you guys. He's describing this celestial city, this glory that opens up. So you can see it in one. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea, meaning no more chaos, no more division between people. There is everything is made new. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So not just arrayed in white linen, but adorned. You know, there is a beauty and a, a weight to those words. And then you see how it plays out. So if you look in three, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That's the ultimate goal of God is that we can be with him. There's something so paternal and compassionate about that, right? That that's his goal. His goal is to find ways to bring us home. I just think it's so warm. In fact, I heard, it was a few months ago, but I heard a commentary about temples being an embassy of heaven. You know how an embassy is in a different country. It gives you a piece of America in a different country. And that same kind of idea of being temples are an embassy of the celestial kingdom. Here on earth, we get just a piece of safety and beauty and a place where God can dwell. And in this celestial glory, he's there all the time. There is this openness to it that is just beautiful to me. And then you see how he treats his people from four to seven. I mean, I've got these marked up like you wouldn't believe in my verses. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. This is John's direction. Remember, this is the Lord saying, write this down. Take pictures, give visuals to the people so that they know how it's worth it. So they remember the kind of God I am and the love that I have for them. Write this down. And then in six, and he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. You just can't talk long enough about these verses. I just think there's such intimacy in them and such longing to have us close to him. And the idea of him making all things new. You know, there's that great talk from Elder Renland about infuriating unfairness and this idea of Jesus Christ being one who restores what was lost. In fact, you can go in the notes and read the full quote, but I love that he said that the consequences of life's unfairness will either be resolved, mitigated, or lifted. That's the promise. There's another one, I think it's Elder Worthland that talks about every tear that you shed here in mortal life will be restored with a thousand tears of joy. You know, like that, that kind of promise that the things that we, that the suffering that we experience in this life, those carved out parts of our hearts will be full of joy. That's the fullness he promises. I also love how he says he's the beginning and the end. This is something you can see in the Come Follow Me manual and also in Brother Wilcox's book, but I love the way he articulates it. He just said it's powerful to think about what he's the beginning of 
and what he's the end of, that we shouldn't just smoosh that phrase together, the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning of life and of peace and of hope and of joy. He is the end of sorrow and pain and death and hell. And like, that's his promise. He is a powerful beginning and a powerful end. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He is these bookends and everything in between. That's the Savior. I think it's powerful how it's phrased in 10. And he carried me away into a spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and her light was like a stone, most precious. This is when he starts to describe what this holy city looks like what this celestial city will look like. Again, I think just like we've had to kind of step back a little bit to understand anything in the book of Revelation, I think you have to step back from the city description as well. For me, I don't think this is literally what the celestial kingdom looks like. I'm I'm sure there's some similarities, but I think he's trying to teach us about what the celestial kingdom feels like and how it it is played out. Because you see these great high walls, this promise of security and safety. In fact, the very fact that it's set up in a mountain, I think is this understanding of like, this is a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. And then he describes it. So he talks about the gates, that there are these gates on every side. I I love that. I think that's, that's a description of the celestial kingdom to me. There is an open invitation to come in. In fact, later in the chapter, you see that those gates are never shut, that there's no night, there's no fear. So you don't ever have to shut those gates. It's just those who are worthy who get to come in. That's the promise is that there will be a, only those who can, who have lived worthy and have made those covenants are able to come in, but you don't need to be afraid there. And then he talks about these portals basically that are on every side of this city, that they are there are 12 of them and they have the names of the apostles on them. For me, this is, you know, those angels that stand as sentinels. This is, these are open gates. And if you can, if you can show your worthiness, then you can enter in. That's the invitation. So if you look in 16, it says, and the city lieth four square and the length is as large as its breadth. And he measured the city with reed, 12,000 furlongs and the length and breadth and height of it were all equal. So it describes this cube almost, right? Like the Holy of Holies. In fact, I think this is supposed to be symbolic of the temple to the people who are reading John's writings then and today. This is the idea of God dwelling among his people, just like the tabernacle offered. But I love this picture of it. In my mind, this, it's gigantic. You know, like this is not a small gated community where just a few people who live close to God get to be. This is a gigantic city. To me, that's just hopeful. It means a lot of people will be worthy to live there <laughs> over the course of our lifetimes and after. I think we will we will come to this place, right? We will come to be worthy to be in this place. That's my hope. I just think it, the way he describes it as so expansive is John trying to say to me, Maria, there's hope. You belong here. The people you love belong here. There's space for you. I just, I love that piece. When you go a little further, you can see that things are garnished with stones. It was, I think it was in the seminary manual, maybe the institute manual. You can see it in the notes, but he talked about how these jewels and the pearls and the gold can represent things that had to go through a process of pressure and time to be beautiful. (laughs) That in the hands of someone who can cut a good gem or someone who could mold the gold, like they are someone who can, they can become something beautiful. And there's, I think that's, those are the inhabitants of the celestial kingdom. They are people who had to go through a process of pressure and effort and repentance over and over again and became something great. The same way a pearl begins as, you know, a grain of sand of sorts, and then over pressure and time becomes something greater. A diamond starts as this lump of coal and 
over pressure and time and heat becomes something beautiful. I think the visual is cool to me. It's not so much about having a city that's bejeweled and lovely. I think it's more about the symbolism that, that that's woven into that part of the story. Then in 22, you learn that the, there isn't a temple in the city. So it says, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Remember, the temple is a place where God can dwell among his people. So in this celestial city, he is there. So you don't need a temple. The whole city is a temple. And then in 23, and the city had no need of sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth to bring their glory and honor unto it. To me, this is that city set on a hill visual. It is lit from within, it radiates out, and it beckons people in. Remember, it's not, for me, when I read it, it's not this city that's tucked away and hidden in a mountaintop hoping no one will find it. It beams out to the world. It beams out goodness and truth and invitation and has open gates saying, come and partake. In fact, he's going to talk about that idea of like, come and partake freely of the waters that are here. If you go a little further, you'll see that described. So if you jump down into 22, for example, it says, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. This city is at its center point. There is a throne of God with this river that flows out from under it and these trees on either side that are freely available to partake. It's, in fact, if you go on three, it says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. To me, this is, you know, there is no more cherubim and a flaming sword defending against anyone partaking of the tree of life. Now you can partake of it freely. In fact, its leaves can heal and bless others. It's designed to be something that offers life to others. And I just think that's such a gorgeous visual for what the celestial kingdom is about. It is something that is not designed to be this gated enclosure, but something where goodness flows from it. And it's an epicenter for that goodness to go out. I just love that visual. And four, it says, and they shall see his face and his name, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They shall have need of no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I actually really like the idea of the name on the foreheads. To me, it's not so much about being part of an exclusive club as it is like you, you're in a fellowship with each other. Just the other day, I was driving down the road and the truck in front of us had a Buckeye logo on the back window and had a Buckeye license plate. And I found myself wanting to honk and wave and like say OH and see if they would respond. Like, I think that's how you'll feel when you see other people who have taken his name upon them. We are in a fellowship with each other. And there is this, you know, I just can only imagine how productive we will be at this point in time. The, the great things that will be accomplished in art and science and, you know, all, all the studies. I just think you've taken away wickedness, you've taken away destruction, you've taken away temptation, and now you have these people who are all ready. It, to me, the way I pictured it was like, if you've ever been in a team project where people are eager to work. <laughs> Normally, I hate team projects. At least I did in the school because, you know, you get stuck with the brunt of the work. This is basically saying like you're going to be in a team project always where everybody is, is capable and strong and eager to do the work. I just think it sounds so exciting to be a part of this community. In fact, I love the way it's phrased. So if you look at nine, it says, 
Well, eight, John falls down and worships the angel that shows him all this. And this is what the angel says in response. Then he saith unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. To me, what this is saying is, there is no hierarchy in this holy city of God. There are no higher angels. There are no lower angels. Either you belong here or you don't, but there is no class structure. There's no division. So there's no worship of each other. Instead, we just turn and worship God. I love that visual. And then it says in 14, so again, he talks about coming quickly. And he says, I am Alpha and Omega and 13, the beginning and the end, first and the last. And then 14, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates of that city. That gate phrasing is interesting to me. All these open gates that surround the city, it's interesting that that's the word choice of baptism, right? The baptism is a gate, a place where we begin and we enter and we make covenants with him. And his invitation is, if you want to belong here, do, you know, do my commandments. That's what it says in 14. I don't think we have to do giant efforts. I think we just have to be righteous saints who are constantly repenting and trying hard. Like that's what he asks us to do. 16 is where I feel like the power starts to come in. This is almost John's plea for me. So instead of just describing that holy city, now he's trying to say, I've shown you all of this. Now come. So 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. To me, this is the Savior holding us close, saying, I am the way. Like, I am all these things, all these things that you might seek for. I am all those things. I am the only way that you can get to this place. In 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. That's John's invitation. That's how he, that's what he pulls from all of this vision. He's saying, I've seen it. I've written it down for you. Come. It's worth it to come. I just think that's the same thing Mormon and Moroni taught. They say, we've seen destruction. We know what that looks like. And we know the Savior. Come. To me, that's the message of the whole New Testament and all of this year's study. Above all other things, I think his invitation is, I've told you what is true. I've given you an example in my life. I've offered a sacrifice so that you can come close. Please come follow me. I think that's his invitation from the first page to the last. And maybe that's why I loved this year in the New Testament. I'm just grateful we got to do it together. Welcome back, you guys. Okay, time for the creative side of our last week of the New Testament. This week runs between Christmas Day and New Year's Eve, I think. So I'm trying to give you some options that could keep your kids busy and help you have fun and teach scripture during this last week of the year. Okay, I'm going to give you a quick preview of each one first. And then for those of you in the full course, I'll walk you through each one individually and give you access to the notes and the printables so that you can teach these in your classes or in your kitchens or wherever you happen to be teaching this week. Okay, first and foremost, if you haven't seen on the chart, it's Kahoot Week. Remember at the end of each quarter, we do a gigantic Kahoot to test our know-how. So I've got 25 new questions for you that cover the last 13 or so chapters of the New Testament, and then a giant Kahoot to test your knowledge of all year. So it'll keep your family guessing and give you some good options. I'll teach you how to link up to it in just a second. The second one, I really wanted to find a way to link what we read in the Doctrine and Covenants about the millennium and about these last days to what we're studying in the book of Revelation. I think 
John does a masterful job of teaching us some of the symbolism and the things we should look forward to. But it would be a shame to only read it from the book of Revelation because we get so much more depth in the Doctrine and Covenants and the Book of Mormon. One of the things you read in those places is about Satan being bound by two forces. The idea of him being bound by what John talks about, him being literally bound by a chain, and also him being bound because there is no one to give him heed anymore. The Spirit is rich in the land, people are turning towards the Savior, and nobody's giving him attention. And we're going to use a really cool object lesson to teach it. If you weren't with us in the Doctrine and Covenants, this is one that was incredibly popular. It's just dazzling to watch and really fun. So this one, you'll need a little bit of fire. It's our last week, so I had to incorporate some kind of fire. So you're going to need a lighter. You also need a tea light candle, a salad plate, a paper towel, and then some kind of cup or vase. We use this kind of like straight-edged vase, but you could use, use a drinking glass as well. The more space it has, the cooler the object lesson will be, but if you only have a drinking glass on hand, that works just fine. Okay, last one. I loved the description of the holy city this week. It's in chapters 21 and 22. This is where John talks about the walls and the jewels, and I just think there's so many cool metaphors and so many ways to teach your kids about what to look forward to. So I wanted some way that my kids could get a hands-on experience for that. And I have to tell you, the first thing that came to mind was Minecraft. My boys play Minecraft a ton. Maybe your kids do as well. But when they talked about the city of Zion being a cube and having gems and jewels, like my mind instantly went to Minecraft. So this week I'm creating a challenge where you can either fulfill it by building a cool Zion-like world in Minecraft, which we'll show you, or if you your kids don't play that game or you don't have access to it, I'm also giving you a printable to do the same thing. So this is a printable cube that you can open and draw Zion. So I'll show you what's inside here. Violet's made a very sparkling kingdom for you to enjoy. But the idea with the printable is that you'll be able to talk through the symbols that are in the description that John gives and talk about why that should give us hope and excitement about the days that are coming towards us. I think you're going to love it. So gather those supplies and you'll be all set. You guys, that is the end of week 52 and the end of an awesome year of study. I am so grateful for this New Testament year. I loved the scriptures before I started this course, and I feel like I love them even more today. Like I, four years of intense, hard study and taking time to write down my thoughts and write down my testimony, write down impressions, they have cemented these scriptures into my heart, and I'm just I'm just so grateful for it. As hard as it's been, I'm so grateful. I was trying to think of how I could wrap things up for this year, and I can't think of an adequate way other than just to bear a simple testimony that I know the church is true. I have never studied it so intensely as I have these four years. And the more I study and the more I seek, the more I know of a certainty that is true, not just from spiritual promptings and impressions that come, but from the study itself. Like, the puzzle pieces are clicking into place for me. Things, prophets and prophecies from, you know, scripture and from modern prophets today, they have clicked into place in a way that I know that church is true. I, I feel like not only do I believe it, but I know it. And for that, I am profoundly grateful. I also feel like these four years of study have given me a rich, full faceted view of my savior. I have um, a deeper and more lasting testimony, not just that he lives, but what his character is like, the kind of God he is, and why we worship him. I am, I love learning that in scripture, and I feel like every book of scripture we studied brought that out for me, gave me a new facet of his character to study and understand and 
hopefully try to emulate. So I'm grateful for it. Um, I was just very a simple witness that I know the church is true. And for me, I know God speaks to his people. I know he does through prophets, through scripture, and through personal revelation. I've felt it in all of those ways over these four years. And I look forward to many more. I think our testimonies and our understandings just get richer from here. As I look forward to 2024, I don't see us repeating the same things or getting the same insights. I see us using these four years as a stepping stone to progress in our testimonies and get richer, deeper understandings. And I can't wait for it. I just think as hard as it has been, the blessings are abundant in my family, in myself, in my testimony, in every way. So I look forward to many more and I I bear you that witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.